you are listening to the second episode of the Spun Mafia podcast. It is hosted by myself, Jeff Hillemeyer, and my three partners from Spun Logic, Raj Chowdhury, Danny Davis, and Raghu Kakarala. This is our second episode, and in this one we talk about some of the things we would do differently if we were starting Spun Logic again today, uh, the big turning points that we went through as we hit our stride, uh, why it's difficult for some agencies to get past that 15 and 20 person hump, uh, the best advice for smaller agencies, and how we remain friends over time. There's also some funny little stories at the end, um, including uh, our first office, which was in the back of a fitness center. So I hope you like it. Okay, welcome back. Look at us. We, we organized ourselves this time. All in black, and we actually are all on one screen. Yeah, but how come you wore, wore a Spun Logic shirt? You didn't get the memo? User-friendly, no. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have any left. I don't have any left. Uh, I wore them in the ground. I, was so, I liked them so much, I wore them in the ground. Yeah, well, the, the uh, laundry day didn't line up correctly for that one. Well, next time, next time. I, I, do, I do like your 44 shirt. Um, all right, guys, let's get into the, to the meat of this thing. Um, so we had some questions from last time that I wanted us to get into as we think about uh, the past. And, and the first is really, what's the one thing, if you had to pick one thing that you think we would do differently if we were able to go back in time and, and start the company? I'll maybe start. Um, I, I think, you know, we probably didn't bring advisors in early enough, right? We brought in advisors, gosh, um, you know, 2003, 2004, like probably a good four or five years after we'd started, right? And um, getting, you know, the advisory board together uh, was like a, you know, a big shift for us. Um, you know, allowed us to bounce ideas and everything else, but we probably didn't know to do that <laughs> early on. And I remember like, you know, Jeff, you were making big asks of some really prominent folks in Atlanta and we were, we were shocked that they'd even like consider spending five minutes with us, yet alone, wow. you know, join our, our board and, and so forth. Well, we, we started that with Bill Nussie and Ken Bernhardt. And then I think everybody else was a yes because those two guys were in which was pretty cool. I actually wrote about, I don't know if you guys remember when we first met Ken Bernhardt, um, but uh, it was when we were working on Brand Atlanta um, and we, he was on the committee and we were building the website for Brand Atlanta. Um, but I actually used that story uh, in my book where the mentor in the book um, meets the protagonist in exactly the same setting. So I, I, I definitely pulled that out. Uh, what about you, Danny? Uh, one thing we could do differently, um, you know, I was thinking about that. The, the, I think one of the things that we, we burned a lot of time and money on was um, how we cut our teeth on learning to run projects when we were first getting off. I mean, you think about the number of projects that we ran that we were way over budget on and we lost money on. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I would think that an early stage agency, if they're doing a lot of custom development work, which we did, not all agencies do that. But if they are, I think going out and hiring somebody with some real experience when it comes to managing those types of projects, managing scope, because scope creep is a nightmare. And just, you know, anybody that has experience running those kind of projects and keeping them on time, on budget, I mean, 
yeah, I think that could be invaluable. The right kind of dev manager or technical project manager, something along those lines, or even the right CTO, depending on the level you're hiring for. I think that I think that could help a ton. We would have benefited from that, honestly. Yeah, I think about some of those early big development projects that just went sideways immediately. <laughs> it was like we would start and then things went off the rails and stayed that way until we got the project done. Um, yeah, you know, and, and over the years, just we've learned so much about it's, it, you know, it was never about the skill of the developers, or the technology people. It was, it was really about how do you manage the client? How do you manage the process? How do you control scope? Like, how do you negotiate things? I mean, that's so much of it was related to sort of project account and those kinds of management and those kinds of skills. So uh, it's hard, you know, it was easy to take those for granted at the time, but I think we learned how important those were over time. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, um, definitely agree with uh, Rod and Danny on those. The other thing I would say is I wouldn't spend too much on this at the beginning, but getting, spending just enough at the beginning on a lawyer and an accountant just to get stuff straight, um, yeah. you know, and you don't need to have them on retainer. You don't need to keep spending money on them, but like to just to get some key things straight um, and um, set up your books um, on the accounting side um, a lot. Everybody makes some mistake there and it should be a lot easier to start a business. You should be able to basically go to the Secretary of State website and hit a button and pay one fee and get it all, everything templated correctly. But, you know, no state makes it that easy um, and you end up paying a lawyer. But if it's five grand, 10 grand, it's worth it um, to get some stuff cleared up at the beginning. What's of, interesting about that is that um, nowadays, I think, you know, you have a lot of that accessible, right? I, I think when we, we started out, like if you search for an SW or MSA, not to even mention that we didn't know what that meant, but you know, besides that, if you do now, you can actually get good templates. Mm -hmm. So folks who are, you know, in that position nowadays, uh, you know, they have a wealth of information. Uh, so I remember. Now. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. relatively. Well, right? you know, well, on that yeah, step, yeah, you I know what's interesting about that. I was referring more oh, to uh, like the corporate formation stuff <laughs> and the accounting stuff, but but yeah, also for for that, yeah, get a SOW MSA thing. But you can basically find a friend in the industry and copy theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, you're going to say true, something. but I, I think actually I was going to say I think even that wealth of information almost creates the opposite problem and the reason why you still need advice because now you've got 15 different ways to handle things from 15 different blogs and it's hard to understand maybe which one is the one that you should be doing. So uh, yeah, it's hard even with all the wealth of information. If you go grab a contract template, for instance, it's hard to know sometimes which part of that contract template should you keep and fight for when you're negotiating with a client versus let go as an example. So yeah, I think those lawyers and accountants are, are obviously really, they actually, they can help a lot more than you think early on, even though they feel expensive, I think. Yeah, definitely. So as you guys think about, um, as we built our business, you know, the first five or six years were um, chaotic um, and I would say not very successful. The, the second five years were also chaotic, but we had a lot of success. Um, and so essentially, when we, once we hit year six, we doubled for you know, the next four or five years until we sold the business. Um, as you look back, what do you think the turning point was? Because I think we all know really good agencies in town run by really great leaders and but they're, they're sort of they get stuck 
10, 15, 20 people. And to take that leap, you know, we ended up around 75 when we sold. What do you think it was that allowed us to do that? I'll, I'll get going first, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I think it was basically a, a combination of things, but it was also the, you know, probably the stability of a couple of very big key clients, right? Uh, Cox Enterprises, uh, Falls, and even if I'm thinking back, even uh, uh, GDCD, right? Um, the state of Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. Those were like big stable accounts, which kind of created a, a nice foundation for us to go take risks elsewhere. We started going into pitches and, and maybe being a bit more bold because we had the freedom of that, that uh, base foundation. Very, very hard to create a base foundation. I don't think we planned out to create the base foundation, but those, those accounts really kind of created that, that uh, groundwork for us to just kind of propel out. Yeah. So like bigger, more stable, even retainer based, yeah. some of those that yeah. allowed us to build on top of. Okay. Yeah. I'd say a couple yeah. things actually. Balzer was three years or more before GDCD and, and Cox. And the other part is if you have a owner like really deeply tied um, with those foundation accounts, I mean, in this case, you know, Danny developed a really deep relationship um, you know, with Balzer early on, he was integral. It became really, you build a base off of that. And, and you're suddenly talking, when you're a small agency, um, you're talking to the assistant to the traveling secretary of the marketer, marketing department, you know, pretty far down the chain and you get your small little contract and nobody really knows you did the work and, you know, you, you get paid, but little by little, you start going up that chain. But, but for Balzer, the owners of the company knew that we were their vendor. Um, and uh, for GDEC and, you know, to a certain extent with Cox, we at least were at the VP level, you know, as far as the relationship. And that's when you have stability. A lot of times you think you're doing a really good job and somebody new comes in from another place and brings their agency in. And that wasn't going to happen in those clients. Danny, what do you yeah, have? I think I think not only do those those accounts give us financial stability, it allows us to take risks, um, you know, Raj, like you were saying, but also it allows us to be more successful, I think, at those risks because we were able to sort of leapfrog that ladder that you climb when you're trying to pitch from a small client to a slightly larger client to a slightly larger one. By having those larger clients, some of the work we did was way more complex than a lot of what we started to pitch for when we started to take those bigger risks, right? So we were able to have some really good referenceable work, I think, pretty quickly. And that's, I mean, that's a hard piece of advice for somebody to follow because a lot of that's about what you land and when you land it. But I think we were fortunate enough to land things in that order that allowed us to leapfrog the size of the accounts we were getting and, and be able to support those pitches. I mean, I think part of it too was we were right out of college when we started this company. So I think five years in, we started probably making less mistakes than we first three years, four years in. So I think a little bit of that was true <laughs> too. So, um, I always thought yeah, we I mean, made less mistakes, but we made bigger mistakes. We had that's the ability, true. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. ability to make bigger. <laughs> we could make much bigger mistakes. That's true. And, and I think to that to that point, Danny, I think it took us a while to figure out um, not only how to um, how to hire um, uh, and you know treat our people. I mean, we we built a better culture over yeah. time. We brought in great people, and we had really great people from day one. But I think we learned to delegate a little bit better as we went, and and to give people a chance. True. To um, and, and we were pretty trusting, um, 
You know, I think we trusted each other to each handle the things we were doing, but we also were pretty trusting with leaders as they developed under us and, and it allowed us to look up and start looking at bigger items than, than micromanaging or getting caught up in the minutia. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if you look, look at who was on the team in that fifth, sixth, seventh year that we had hired, uh, we had some great people that helped us through that time too and brought their experience to the table. Yeah, for sure. So question, question for you guys. Um, it, you know, there's two schools of thought really on um, agencies in terms of services. One, which is how we did it, was we really did as much as we could um, for clients. Um, we grew, we weren't, we didn't say we're web or email or we just said, we'll take it, we'll learn it, we'll build it. And that allowed us to scale. But at the same time, um, you know, I think actually uh, everything we've been in, involved in since has been a little more focused. What would the advice you guys would give to a to an agency starting today? Do you think they should focus on one specific area, or do you think they say, "Hey, we'll take what we can get and build around anything that uh, we can sell"? Uh, I think you are what your last two or three wins say you are at the beginning. Um, you can say you want to focus on something, but meanwhile, you're winning some email work or a website or you know, some SEO or PPC. And that's the main thing that the last couple of people did. So until you establish a track record, you are what your last couple of wins say you are, but you should try filtering through that one year in or two years in and really double down on what you do well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we've all kind of come from, you know, the uh, early days where we were like anything and everything. Right. And, and that was maybe a lot to do with just surviving. <laughs> Right. I don't think we would have said no to anything. Um, so given the choice, um, I think focusing much more. Right. Um, you know, and it depends what you're really trying to achieve. You know, I mean, even even in back in this fun days, you know, uh, I think even the last episode we, we talked about being sought after and so forth. Right. Uh, getting really, really good at something is how you get sought after. Right. And it allows focus and everything else. So if you have the ability um, to focus in on something and, and be known for it and to be extremely good at it, you'll be able to accelerate much faster than just taking on everything and everything. But the reality of the game is that sometimes that's exactly what you have to do. So mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not a, you know, some people just don't have a choice. Yeah. What I think is interesting about that is, you know, as we grew and started getting larger accounts, part of the way that we were able to get those larger either agency of record accounts or the really large pitches was because you had to have a diversified skill set on your team to be able to do that work. And, um, and if you were too hyper-focused, so like you say, you, you focused on WordPress and front-end design and that's what your agency does, uh, you would never get the larger accounts. So I think, yep. I agree. I, I think it's a tough, I think it's a tough bag. I, I think it has a lot to do with what Raghu said. It depends on who you're winning. It depends on your team and what their skills are and what they're good at. Um, because if you have a team that, if you got four WordPress developers that got together to start a company, you shouldn't be doing Documentum probably day one, right? So I, I think it depends on the team you, you've got. Um, we had a pretty flexible team, one pretty novice. So we didn't bring a lot of experience. We couldn't all, we didn't all come from the medical community to be able to build a medical technology company. So we were hungry to just do whatever we could. And therefore we had a pretty flexible company. So I think it does have a lot to do with, you know, the people, the team you have, and then also your goal as to what kind of company you want to become. And I don't know that 
any one answer is going to be the right answer, whether it's to hyper-focus or to, or to broaden your skill set, to say the truth. I do remember, you know, we used to debate, um, you know, especially even uh, around technology, you know, how much do we want to concentrate our efforts on, say, .NET or Java or ColdFusion back in the day, right? And then there's a plethora of other things coming through. Like, the interesting thing for us back then was that it was, it was a bit of the Wild West on, you know, something was big and then something else and so forth. And so, you know, trying to find talent that could move around and we're actually pretty successful in finding people who could just learn and, and, and get it done. And maybe that was also maybe, I think a better reflection because of us. I mean, we also kind of like, even if we didn't know it, we just go off and learn it. And I think that maybe helped in, in how we hired people that were inquisitive and that learned. So it wasn't, Hey, I'm .NET and that's it. Or, you know, I only do print design and that's it <laughs> or whatever it is, yeah. you know? Well, um, I guess the other thing is if you're a businessman and you want to start a business, then you're so excited about what you're winning and you'll adapt your skill set. If you really enjoy something, you know, app development or you really enjoy, you know, some other niche, ultimately you're going to be more successful because you get really deep into it. But if you're a business person and you like technology, which was basically the four of us, um, then whatever technology was interesting, after a while, we found what was cool about it or what was new about it and did it. But if you were more focused and like, hey, I really like this thing, you picked it and you'd get good at it and be passionate about it. And that's part of it. But I think we were passionate about being businessmen. We were passionate about the internet. Um, but as far as that next level of specialization, I don't think that was our passion. We liked the whole thing. It was really exciting. And I think we, I think we talked about this last time, but the thing that I think helped us um, be successful, even though we were doing lots of different, um, you know, things from from a services perspective, was we we had that grounding in user experience, which which um, again we can debate whether that was super unique or not, but it did give us a, a singular view into everything that we did, and so when we pitched, maybe it was the first time we were pitching email, but we had a had a, an opinion and a take on it. And we could draw from all this user experience we did with other things to prove that we were the best to bring that experience to life. So I think, you know, you can be more broad, but you do need something that, that pulls it all together. Yep. All right. So question, um, you know, we, here we are, we're four of us that built a company, sold a company, stayed at the next company for a bit, um, remained friends over time. Um, lots and lots of founders have trouble doing that. Um, how did we, how did we remain friends throughout all this? Well, beer probably helped. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it really came down to, um, yeah, a level of trust. And I think each of us had, you know, we, we all kind of knew, um, you know, where we were good at, right. And, and also where we'd struggle or where we were adapting into. Right. Uh, and so that kind of allowed each of us to go do our thing. Right. Um, and not worry or micromanage um, or, um, you know, kind of look, look underneath every single, uh, you know, file or anything like that. So I think it was just, it, it wasn't, I don't know, necessarily planned or anything like that, but we just had a natural ability to like, okay, Jeff's got this, you know, Danny's got this, Raghu's got this, Roger's got this, or someone needs to figure this out, who's best, just go figure it out. You know, not all four of us have to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we were really good at, at, I mean, we were all passionate about the business. So we had plenty of arguments. I don't even remember what most of them are about. 
but I, I, we did a great job of, of getting passionate and maybe even arguing about things. But then when we made a decision, we really let it go. I mean, I think that was a, we innately had that. I don't think anybody trained us to do that. And there's a lot of seminars and a lot of training these days that are about how teams are supposed to do that. You're supposed to be passionate. You're supposed to be argument. But then when a decision is made, you got to get behind that and, and back it up, back each other up. And I, I think we did that naturally for some reason. I think that helped a lot. Um, you know, we, we, we forgave each other a lot. I think that's, I think, I think a lot of the things that kept us friends were some of the stuff that are good in every relationship, right? I mean, we would all say stupid things. We would all hurt each other's feelings. We'd all get mad, but we were all passionate and we, we just let it go and we forgave and we moved on and we continued to push forward and focus on, you know, the things that were important for the company. So I think, I think that has helped a ton over the years as well. Well, luckily we each messed something up, so we never could really get that met, that mad at uh, the other three folks. True. Um, you know, um, every now and then we, when we had, one of them had a good six month run of doing things right, we'd probably start uh, percolating uh, some dissatisfaction until we then messed something up and just sort of said, oh, well, you know. Um, and I guess to that point, we all knew we were going to mess up. I mean, we knew... Yeah we were learning and it's okay. You know, for as long as you're trying your best and being honest, um, that's okay. One tactical thing that, you know, we did that, you know, at least worked for us, I think, is that we just all said, we're going to make the same salary until we sell the thing. And I think that, you know, it's a small thing, but I bet it helped us not have animosity. Why is he making more or something sure. of that nature? Yeah. yeah I could I imagine if you helped. did something like, um, Oh, getting a percentage of what sales I made versus you made versus, something it the work that you have to do after the sale is like even more important than the work of getting the sale in the first place there really is no area where you can't mess up without affecting everybody else or do better in one area well the rest of the stuff needs to work well also and at any one point in time nothing's ever completely equal over a period of time everything's completely equal yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, you know, now, I was going to say, I mean, it's interesting just to think about that nowadays. I mean, you know, I don't know if it was naturally planned, right? It was just, it was like, yeah, that, that's, we're just going to pay ourselves all the same thing. And that was it. Like, I don't, it's it actually weird to think back, you know, now, like, how, how in the world did we even come up with that? Obviously, a lot of people do it, but it wasn't like a, you know, a thought, uh, a thought that we had that was going to protect us down the road. And it did, hundred percent. Sorry, Danny. Well, I think I think it reflected our no. I think it reflected our focus on. We were focused on the end game the whole time, and so we didn't waste time quibbling over you know an extra thousand dollars on a paycheck or something like that yeah. early on. And we there was many times we went out without paychecks uh, to make sure we could make payroll, but nobody ever got grumpy about that or upset. We all just plowed through it and had I think a focus on on the end game really. So I think that was reflected in that. Um, How important do you guys think? How important do you guys think that was that we really knew exactly what we were trying to do with the company from early days? I mean, I think Critical. that's epically important. Yeah. I mean, cause if, because if all four of us had a different idea in our head, that's where the tension would have arise, arisen pretty quickly because well, you know, when yeah, you have I'm key not... decisions to make, it would, we'd argue because we'd all be trying to go in different directions based on how that decision was made. Yeah, and honestly, everybody's, value or things are very or or different i mean yeah we all paid got paid the same amount but we all got paid very little um you know so that uh, that also kept us focused on the end game because the end game was going to make not getting paid much at all worth it um and 
you know, it, it isn't, you know, I suppose Danny as a dev could have gone and said, hey, I want to get a really good dev job. And on the side, I'll see you when I see you, you know, when, um, when everything is good. Um, at the end of the day, you need to do everything well. And we paid ourselves as little as possible until we figured out how to do everything well. Yep. You know, Jeff, you mentioned something too that I think helped us all, which was we all knew we were going to mess up. And I think Rudu commented a little bit too, but I think not focusing on, you know, blaming each other for the screw ups and instead focusing on how we recover from them and then learn from them, prevent them in the future. I mean, they, you know, that's got to be the attitude you have. Otherwise that's also going to cause animosity between team members. If, it, if it's mostly a blame game as opposed to just to learn and move on. Yeah. yeah it, it is amazing to me. Um, how many people um, have been taught that if their leader or their boss sees them mess up, then they're going to get in trouble or it's some terrible thing. Yeah. It's sad because it's, it's the only way to learn, right? It's the only way to do anything right. interesting is if you try things and fail and say, all right, as long as we're trying our best in learning, it's great. It's fine. Mm -hmm. So as we think about selling the company, one of the things I'm sure you guys have been asked um, a lot over the years from other agency owners, um, advice on selling. Um, and there's so many directions to take that, but are there one or two things that, that you guys would say to, to anyone asking that question, you know, make sure you have this in order or factor these things in or, you know, what's going to lead them to have a successful sale of their business? I think a few things. One be honest with yourself. Are you selling because you're growing well, you're doing good things and being part of a bigger company could let you bring that to a wider audience or in a bigger way or get a complimentary skill because it's not about you. It's about the potential buyer or it's, and your clients, you know, do your, would your clients be better serviced if you were bigger, had more geography, had more services, um, and just think about it from the, the perspective of your client and an acquirer. Um, and sometimes you're really happy with what you're doing, but maybe that's really more of a lifestyle business and not a growth business. Um, so you can do things really well and not necessarily be sought after, or you can be sought after, but really need some things. And you, the only way to get them is to be part of something else. Yeah, I mean, we're good. So knowing what you're going after, knowing what the real reason you want to sell is key. I agree with that. Yeah, Raj? Yeah, and I was going to agree with Raghu. I mean, 100%, you know, is it going to better, you know, the agency? Is it going to better your people? Uh, you're going to, uh, your client's going to get um, something more out of it, right? So you want to be in, a, if you're choosing to, to sell your company, uh, you want to you want to try and make sure you position to do it from a point of advantage, right? Not from a distressed uh, point. You know, the the other thing I'd mentioned is that you know, know uh, know the size to sell, right? Um, I, I really don't think um, selling uh, too small. Uh, you, you're not going to get the best value. You're not going to get the best out of um, uh, your folks um, when you sell too small, right? So there's and what a, would there's well, I think 10 million in revenue, right? Um, but 2 million in, in EBITDA. Um, that allows for level scale to give a good uh, value that you've built. And, and it's, it's a relative scale in the marketplace uh, that buyers, you have more choice in buyers, right? And you're not, they're not buying you just from a value standpoint or just for talent. They're buying you for a strategic reason. And you want to find a partner 
that uh, is looking for strategic reading. The reason why I give those numbers is that just, you know, and Ragu can probably speak to this better than I can, but, you know, just the, the cost of trying to go through diligence, right? Not only to your, your organization, but to their organization, bankers, you know, the whole nine yards, it is not cost effective uh, really to try and do a transaction for uh, a small amount. It almost costs you more than anything else. So then you're giving up a lot of enterprise value. Uh, yeah, those numbers definitely true as like kind of the way we did our sales. I mean, at actually, you know, selling in kind of a quasi Wall Street way of going about it. I think you could have a smaller transaction where you've merged in with another agency, yep. you evaluate each other's books because together you want to get some math. But the next level up would be, you know, going down that route that Raj talked about, you know, um, evaluating the marketplace, working with an investment bank, working with audits and all the other pieces. It's just stuff costs a lot. And you, you wouldn't want to do a transaction where so much of the fees ended up going to all these third party entities. It, you want the value to come to the buyer and you want value to come to the seller. Um, and that doesn't happen when there's all these fees if it's at a smaller level. But you can definitely combine in with other firms and merge um, versus a true acquisition. And, um, you know, Jeff has some recent experience with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I was going to say to Rogers, you know, to counter Rogers a little bit, it's one thing if you want to sell transact and then be done with it. Um, but it's also to Ragu's point, um, we've definitely done that um, with some agencies that want to be part of something together and build something mm -hmm. together. Um, let me ask this question though. So to, to the idea that when you sell to a company, um, you, you know, you really need to factor in, um, you know, what, what the new entity is going to bring to bear, um, what it's going to do for your team members, your clients, so forth. Um, if you were being honest, what percentage of our decision was based on the deal being too good to pass down versus that opportunity afterwards? For the spun deal, I mean, I think maybe each of us may have slightly different answers, right? Uh, but I, I, you know, there's certainly the, the financial aspect that was important, so I'm not discounting that. Uh, but I do think our, our frame of mind at that time was that, uh, you know, we can have control of where digital goes, right? Uh, but leverage uh, a larger entity, locations, larger clients, things like that, and and, and be able to propel um, what we could do. So we want necessarily, if I'm thinking back to Spawn, like we didn't sell it to like just walk away from it, right? Uh, we wanted to be part of something next, and we were trying to find obviously the best financial uh, outcome but also uh, an environment where we still had control and say, so we want just a tiny tuck-in. Uh, you know, we knew we, by then, I think we, we knew that we were doing pretty, we had something uh, special from a digital standpoint, right? And we knew we could bring that value to the next entity and scale it up. You guys agree you know, with that? And Jeff, back to your, well, back to your point. Oh, um, yeah, I, I think, sorry, I was gonna jump back to another one, but on, on that on that question, I think a lot of it was about the the price we were getting and the multiple we were getting. I mean, that was certainly a driving part of our decision. And then I think a secondary part of the decision was then where do we fit? Where do we fit well? And I think we were lucky enough at the end to have basically a choice, I believe, um, that was very two so very similar offers. I don't think everybody winds up in that situation. So, um, 
we were in the catbird seat where we had a couple of offers very similar and we got to choose, you know, you know, pick our poison, so to speak. Um, so I, I think that's where we were. I was going to go back to you with, you were asking about advice for when you're selling. Um, I wanted to, I had something and then I wanted you to comment on something. So first I, I think it was, it's important to acknowledge when, when you're selling, when you do start going through due diligence and selling your company, just how draining that is on the leader or leaders of the company. And so if you're somebody who only has one, you know, you're, you don't have any partners and you're by yourself. I think it's, it's extremely important to be able to have a right hand man or a COO or somebody that can help run the company. But I also think in our, our case, you know, Jeff, you were our top sales guy still at the time along with Joe. And so you influenced a lot of what was happening in sales and to have you dedicated the deal was, was potentially dangerous to us. And so we had to take precautions to make sure our pipeline stayed, stayed good, you know, fresh during that time. So, I think just being aware of going into that everybody else involved in the process doesn't have to worry about running the company. So they're going to sap you dry. You're going to be traveling. You're going to be in tons of meetings. You're going to be focused on being stressed about the deal. So you need to be aware of the fact that you need to keep running the company because we were also lucky in that the first company we picked with, we closed the deal on and, and the numbers aren't great on that happening every time. And so you can go through months of due diligence and have a deal fall apart. And if at the same time you weren't taking care of the shop, not only did your deal fall apart, but now you're way behind on sales and you got to start the whole process of building back up maybe, you know, six months in, uh, behind. Um, so just something to be aware of as you go into the yeah. process. Um, no, Danny's totally correct. I mean, if you want to do a deal, your best people are probably yourself or maybe you're not the best person, but at least you pick the best people. And, uh, <laughs> and they're putting... 10, 20%, maybe 50% of their time every now and then when it comes to travel and meetings and all of that. And if they spent it on their own firm, that should uh, be better. So you need to really believe that you're doing it for a real reason. And on top of that, honestly, I have a different perspective. I'd say that any quality buyer would pay you roughly the within range of what the market is saying that you're worth. I mean, somebody might accidentally be paying more, but they probably don't know the market well, if they're accidentally paying more. So maybe you're picking somebody who doesn't know what they're doing um, for a little bit more money. Um, or if they're paying less, are they really thinking that you are going to be able to succeed with them as much? Are they kind of discounting it because they're not really sure if things are going to work out? So I think the monetary range settles itself. If there's a market for you, it'll be roughly in range, give or take. And then you don't need to worry about the last little bit or the last tiny part of the structure. You want to go with somebody that you can achieve your goals with because you have, you're going to spend several years together. Are you really going to pick the wrong choice and spend several years with somebody that you're not going to achieve your professional goals or your team is not going to achieve their professional goals with. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I, I don't know if we, you know, on that first transaction that we did was fun. We did not, you know, just looking back, we did not do a good enough job really looking at the company, right? In hindsight, I mean, we, we really like now going through it a couple of times, like now really looking through numbers and, you know, what the market advantages are and everything else. Uh, we, we just made the assumption that someone, us joining someone else was going to be a good thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, 
kind of reflecting back, like I had done way more diligence. We just didn't know any, any better to do that level of diligence ourselves. We always felt the diligence was the other way around. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. So Jeff, before we leave this topic, what I wanted to know from you was what were some of the most valuable either entities that we brought in to help with the sale that you would recommend that people focus on? Mm -hmm. um, and as an example, I remember us after the deal, you saying something like, man, having the right accounting partner really saved us a lot of money on the deal or the right legal counsel, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it's a trifecta. Um, uh, one of the things that Purdue did early in the process was help us find, um, I guess he was a, um, a part-time CFO um, that helped us. Rick really Lynch. Work. Yeah, he, he was who's, awesome. Who's actually now CFO of MailChimp. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so that being a really important part of it, um, obviously um, having good legal counsel and representation, um, ideally one uh, that has uh, experience. There were so many things that Kilpatrick Stockton um, guided us on that we never would have thought to even ask or think about. So, so that yeah. helped I me mean, certainly from the, you know, the cross on the T's and dot in the I's of the contract, which is like literally we, you know, thinking a year out from after the deal, what things we need to be making sure are in. So, so that was huge, but I think, you know, there's, there's debate on whether you, um, you try to sell without um, a, a firm representing you. Um, and um, we used ad media partners and what they did was they took us to market. Um, and I, I would say they were worth every penny that we paid to have them do that. They can create a market for you. So they, they assess. And when we talked to them the first time, they said, hey, you're not ready. Give it six, nine months, keep growing like you're growing, and then we'll take you to, to, to the market. Um, but they really, you know, they got us in front of people that never would have um, uh, known about us. And um, I think really provided that market of people, of, of co corporations yeah. that were looking to buy someone like us. I think that um, Ad Media was a recommendation from Dave Williams from and Dave and Brian from 360i. Yeah, I think they um, actually recommended we look at both them and Petsky. Yeah, uh, we interviewed them both, and I, for whatever reason, we went with Ad Media. Well, five years later, we went with Petsky. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, engage use Petsky to sell. Yeah. yeah. But um, the other thing is, I, I also think like the ability for Ragu and I to go to most of the initial meetings to, to um, talk to potential acquirers and, and to have you two back at the, at the office running things, keeping things moving was huge. You know, to your point earlier, Danny, like if it had been one partner, it would have been really hard to, to, to continue building the business while that happened. So um, that was invaluable. Um, okay, let's have some fun. Let's let's talk about some some uh, some memories that we we laugh about every time we think about them. Let's start with Raj's spelling, which was epic, epic. which is awesome. I have perfect spelling, perfect grammar. Just yeah, let's let's move on. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah let's go move ahead. on. Yeah, the um, I was going to say my uh, there's so many good memories of it, but um, probably the best contextual one was. Uh, of Roger's bad spelling is actually because of some uh, mistakes we actually made in copywriting for a different client that Roger wasn't involved in. And the, the client wrote back and said, hey, really, I need better quality um, on this for we've had an email or two go out with a couple of um, copy errors and uh, we need you to be more diligent and we need your team to really, you know, um, be on point on this and Roger Seriously, wrote her back and said, "I've talked to my team. We're, you know, getting everything straight. 
um, um, I trust, you know, you should trust that um, I'm going to take this, take your business very sensuously. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good that Raj offered to be very hands-on um, with her business, but um, I'm not sure if it really put her at ease. Um, yeah. In that instance, <laughs> I, yeah, man, my favorite memories of Roger Spelling weren't actually the spelling, they were Jeff's reaction to it. So, uh, you know, Jeff, to his credit, was very much a detail oriented communicator when it came to dealing with our clients, right? Wanted us to say the right things the right way, and we all learned a lot about that. But boy, I'd be, I remember being with Raj, like we'd be in a conference room working on something, and Jeff would come into the room and he'd be furious and he'd write on the wall and he'd go, Raj, what's where, where, and where? <laughs> this is how you use each one. Right. This is there, there, and there. This is how you use each one. Like there was once a week, there was at least a drama where Jeff would come in and put an English lesson on the whiteboard for for Raj. And boy, I, I just I, those were classic moments. <laughs> You know, Rod used to blame it on being British, but you know, I was like, Rod, they speak English over there too. He invented it. <laughs> he just had to change all sorts of spelling. <laughs> I think the worst, thing was, the worst thing was when, um, you know, the capability came in Word where you could just have the squiggly line and just hit accept, accept, accept. And that's, that's all it would do. It got huh? worse. It got worse. I'm sure that's how, <laughs> that's how I'm sensual. sure that's how <laughs> got in there. Uh -huh. <laughs> it got worse. If, if you guys, if you guys remember, I was a bit of a, it's probably still am a bit of a Pekka uh, typer, right? So I'm just like this. Right, and then I go up and <laughs> accept, 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 get it out. <laughs> Next thing. Um, <laughs> should should we great. have Rod spell seriously on this call, or should we give him a pass? <laughs> I'll be wrong. No, yeah, so. I'll, right, be let's I'll be essential. I'll be to you. <laughs> <Let's just laughs> go badly. All right. What What about our um, our first official office? It was in the back of a Fitness International. Danny, you want to describe it and then describe the um, the times we couldn't could not have clients in for meetings? <laughs> sure. Actually, well, I want to do, I'll tell one story before that and sure. then talk about what an upgrade that was. But I remember, so our first unofficial office was in Jeff's basement. So his family house's basement, right? So we had two computers down there and uh, I'd come back from college and decided to live where I work. So I ended up setting up a small room in his basement. This is an unfinished basement. We had our computers and our printer down there. And uh, what was funny about it was since it was a basement and it didn't have normal air circulation, I would wake up in the morning and I'd be covered in dust. And I always joked, I'd get up and do this and dust would fly off my shirt. And then I'd go over to the computer and sit down and start working. And that was my shower in the morning. So, but uh, then we were lucky enough to actually upgrade and get our first office. And that's what you're referring to, Jeff. And we, our first office was in the back of a fitness center. And what had happened is a fitness center had taken the back part of their, of their space and carved out some office space to run out. Well, what, what made it funny was that the walls that they had chosen happened to be mirrored walls because they were running some sort of class in there. So half of our office had mirrors. So when you put your, when you're sitting at your desk, you looked up at yourself in the mirror, which was kind of funny. But what was even funnier was that they moved the class right next door that they were running. And so certain times of the day, the base would shake the tables and the, and the walls in the, in the, in the office. So we had to start putting a special schedule together to make sure that we knew the schedule so we didn't have anybody show up at the office while the class was going on because you barely could have a conversation during the classes. So I just remember that as a classic thing we had to avoid was scheduling meetings with clients, you know, during a, a, a jazz class or whatever they're doing back then. 
the brave client that would drive behind the back of the fitness center into this. Yeah, yeah no, meet us in the <laughs> back of the fitness shady. center. That's right. <laughs> it was a shady entrance. <laughs> well, guys, we got through a lot today. Um, our next episode, we're going to go into the engage years. Um, that's what uh. I expect us to tell the truth. So does that mean, am I only going to be on for some of the talk yeah. then and then leave just like the right. <laughs> Remind us how long, because the three of us stayed through the end of that. I was on two years, eight yeah. to 10. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to get into that. We're going to, we're going to talk all about that. So, all right, boys, we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Hey guys. Bye. Good job guys. Bye. Talk to you later. Yeah.